Ladies and gentlemen, get ready for the boom. From the regional offices of Down and Off in Norwalk, Iowa, and Sock Rapids, Minnesota, it's time for another exciting episode of our podcast dedicated to the Hawkeye Marching Band, its members, its alumni, and its fans. Greetings, band family. I'm John Brown, along with the master of the podcast editing suite, Tim Clay. Hey, Tim, basketball season has come to an end for 2021. Both men's and women's teams had great runs at the end of the season. Absolutely. What a historic season for the uh, the men, at least as far as careers go. It ended, you know, I think a lot of us wish that they could have gone a little further in the tournament. Maybe they make that sweet 16, but you can't not enjoy the runs that Luca Garza and Joe Wieskamp and Jordan Bohannon have given us over the years. Great season, very enjoyable. Wish it would have gone a little further, but it was still a blast. And the, the future is bright with, you know, Murray and Toussaint. Very good stuff ahead. Yeah, I, I think there are some bright days ahead of us. Big hat tip to Luca Garza. What a career. I've got my fingers crossed that he gets National Player of the Year and gets that love. He was close last year. And so, yeah, really hoping that he gets that, that award. He absolutely deserves it. They had a heck of a run. It was a tough tournament for the Big Ten, especially with Michigan falling out last night to UCLA and just what looked to be a total heartbreaker. Then on the flip side, Bluters Bunch, the women's team, uh, had kind of a, an okay midly rebuilding season, uh, but then really finished strong, you know, making it all the way to the finals of the Big Ten tournament, making it to the Sweet 16, giving UConn a run for its money, all on the backs of uh, obviously freshman phenom Caitlin Clark, but also led by junior Monica Sanano, McKenna Warnock, Gabby Marshall, a heck of a season and they return. I think I saw the stat on the UConn game, like 96% of their scoring offense. So they're going to be even better next year. Interesting side note on that Iowa UConn game. It was the second most watched NCAA women's basketball tournament game in history. And while UConn deservedly, I mean, they're UConn yeah. 20 point win. My headline is this Caitlin Clark, 21, Paige Becker's 18. Take that Associated Press when you picked the National Player of the Year. You know, it's 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 a case of I'm from Minnesota. We hear a lot about Paige Becker's. We heard a lot about her last year. She had the Minnesota Timberwolves showing up at her high school games. So I mean, she's gotten I mean, good player. But I think a lot of people did not pay much attention to Caitlin Clark till the end of the season. I mean, heck, when you see people like Sue Bird and Megan Rapino out on Twitter during the first weekend of the tournament saying, um, everybody, are you watching Caitlin Clark from Iowa? Maybe you should. And then to come back, look at the stat sheet after the game against UConn and seeing that she outscored Paige Beckers, I thought was kind of a nice little. Uh, they, she got so much love and attention in that week leading up to the UConn game, like JB lists out there. And a lot of folks were saying like, this is the game of the week. This is the player to watch. Um, and I appreciated the, the, um, friendly competition between Caitlin and Paige that like they were all smiles out there helping each other up. Like, you know, anything you can do, I can do better and just pushing each other. Uh, I hope they see each other again in the NCAA tournament at some point. Yeah. I think it'd be kind of cool to see. Hey, we want to take a moment to jump into the mailbag um, as the alumni band has been sent a request. Um, 
you may have seen this out on the Down and Off Facebook page, as well as the Hawkeye Marching Band alums Facebook page. But I was uh, approached by a couple, actually it was the U of I Center for Advancement was approached and they passed along to me. There's a couple in Iowa City who are planning to be married on Saturday, June 26th. And they have reached out to us to ask if there would be a group of our alumni band family in the area, so in Eastern Iowa, on that day, who would be willing to come and play the school songs at the reception. Reception is going to be at the Graduate Hotel in downtown Iowa City. Um, I don't think we need really a huge group, um, but we want to make sure we have good instrumentation, all of that stuff, one that can play the, the school songs um, on their special day. Um, the groom has been good about keeping in touch with me, uh, talking about sounds like at least in Iowa, the COVID numbers have improved, um, at least per, and it seemed like particularly in eastern Iowa and Johnson County um, as the vaccinations are going out. So they are optimistic that they can move forward with their plans. And so they've been doing a great job of, of keeping me up on that. So uh, what I would say is if you have a comfort level um, where you feel like that would be a good thing that you'd be okay doing, you're interested, willing to help us out. And some of you already have, thank you for reaching out through the Facebook pages. I'm, I'm keeping track of that, but uh, feel free to send us an email uh, and our Gmail account, which is iowaalumniband at gmail.com and just let us know. And again, I'll just, I'll add you to the list. As we get closer to time, I will get that group together and we will find a way to coordinate. Um, like I said, you can see more, you can see the same information out on the Down and Off podcast Facebook page, as well as the H, HMB alumni group Facebook page. So thanks in advance for your consideration on that. And if you can do it, great. I wish I could, but I'm 400 miles away and that's not necessarily an easy trip to make. So um, I, I will ask for your support on that. So Tim, who do we have on this latest edition of the show? We have former drum major Press Maxson joining us. Uh, not only was he an outstanding drum major, but he is now an author and, as you'll hear, very big on costume changes. It's a super fun interview. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, more on the costume changes later. All right. Well, on that note, let's go down and off. Welcome back to the Down and Off podcast, the podcast for members of the Hawkeye Marching Band and Friends. We have a very special guest for you today. He is a former drum major with an incredibly successful career, post-collegiate career, living the dream and eager to share his stories with us today. Mr. Press Maxson, how are you doing, sir? Fellas, I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. This is a real treat. To begin with, let's uh, go with our usual first round of questions. What'd you play? Uh, what was your position with the band? When were you in the band? And what'd you major in while you were there? <laughs> yeah, I played trombone for one year and I had an awesome time. Uh, I then was the drum major from 1999 through 2002. And my, I was an English major uh, and graduated in December of 2002. I had a good time doing all of it. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about what you're doing now and where, where you're living and all that. Yeah. Uh, thank you for asking. Um, so after Iowa, I, uh, I didn't really leave the, the band world. I stayed um, 
I was an instructor and eventually a director at Smith Walbridge Clinics, which is a nationally known, internationally known in some cases, drum major camp. And I stayed doing that until, gosh, after I was married, until into my 30s. Uh, I also stayed kind of in the world of band doing individual clinics at high schools and colleges kind of during the summer for their band camps, uh, sometimes just working with drum majors, sometimes working with a whole band. And I got to do that kind of all over the U.S. But the, the real cliff notes is I, I moved to Los Angeles after we got out of school. I spent a little time as a professional musician and had like so much fun and made like very little money. <laughs> and then I started getting some good jobs in like television. Uh, but then I moved in 2008. I moved back to the Midwest uh, when I fell in love with a Midwestern girl and she's my wife now. So that's worked out. And I'm currently an ad writer and a novelist. And actually, fellas, today, this is no joke. Today is a very special day because this morning I woke up and ran the numbers and it happened overnight, but I sold my 5,000th book. So I'm, I'm legitimately here to party. And I know it's a podcast and you can't see it, but I'm raising a glass. Right <laughs> so I'm, I'm legitimately here to party. So let's get, let's get weird. That's awesome. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. What, what genre do you write particularly? Yeah, I'm a uh, mystery humor. <laughs> it's, okay. it's not scholarly. It's not at all. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I think it's safe to say my time at Iowa sort of, sort of shaped all that. But we can get into that. I love, I love kind of just exploring, um, taking you know, what might seem on the face a real life situation and then just letting my imagination sort of run with it. I, it's, I have three books. The most recent one is not a humor mystery, but the most recent one is a separate thing that I can tell you about. But that's, yeah, that's where my wheelhouse is. And I, I love doing it. So very proud today when I woke up and I saw the, that somebody bought a book overnight. That <laughs> <laughs> is a very cool milestone. Thank you. Now, when we talked ahead of time, you indicated that uh, the Hawkeye Marching Band kind of inspired your first book which got you in. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm going to talk about that, but I'm not comfortable until I do a costume change, fellas. And I know that this isn't the kind of thing, again, with a podcast so we can see at home. But I went into my closet and I just decided what's going to get me in the mood to talk to like the fellas with the band, Tim and John. So I, I brought out my old, you know, my old windbreaker here, which <sighs> fits me perfectly still. <sighs> Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Let the record show. I'm wearing the same windbreaker I wore when I was 19 and I can't get it down over my belly button. Just kidding. <laughs> yeah. The first book I ever wrote or tried to write, I didn't even write it because it was so bad. I didn't make it to the end, uh, but it was about the band. And after my last game, I, I went into Kevin Kasten's office. I went into Dr. Welch's office, the, the director of bands at the time. And, and I just said, like, guys, I said, I want to write a book. And I, and I said, there's nothing like scandalous. It's not like a tell-all. It's not, um, you know, I, I'm not, I'm doing this kind of out of love. But I really felt like I had witnessed a unique stretch of Hawkeye football from a unique vantage point. I just thought, like, I'm one of, you know, 20 people in modern history who've gotten to be the, the drum major at some point, you know, and I was one of those schools where there's only one of those. I didn't share the experience with anybody else uh, while I was doing it. 
And I thought, you know, there's got to be something there. And uh, so I, I wrote up a big chapter outline, like stories I wanted to tell. Uh, I pitched it even to a publisher actually today for the first time in 19 years, I opened the files. I opened the outline. I didn't even think I still had them because uh, it was on a, an old hard drive, but it's as luck would have it. My brother-in-law saved the hard drive and converted it, you know, to the cloud a couple of years ago. And so today I was like, man, I wonder if those old word files were in that. So I went into the cloud today and I found it and I was right. It was awful. Like it was, it was horrible. I mean, it was it was fun for me to read, but I understand why I got rejected from the publisher. And I know a lot more about publishing now and that a rejection from a publisher is like the last thing that you should let stop you from writing something. But uh, at the same time, it was like, oh, yeah, it, it wasn't good. But the, uh, a big important thing about that was that I found out what kind of writer I was supposed to be. And or, or maybe more appropriately, I found out what kind of writer I wasn't supposed to be. And that, that first person autobiographical, fun anecdote memoir kind of writer uh, was not where my comfort zone was and really still isn't. I mean, I, I can do it better now because I have more discipline. I have more experience writing, but it doesn't make it any more fun or, or easy. But uh, it sure was fun looking over, <laughs> looking over my outline and my like pitch letter to the publisher and everything today. Very cool. I love the way you look at that. Uh, what's the, uh, the Thomas Edison quote? I didn't fail to make a light bulb 2000 times. I found 2000 ways to not make a light bulb. Like, yeah, that's exactly it. And I kept feeling bad because I had, this is a lesson I've learned since I've kept feeling bad because I, I told people I was going to do it and I was excited about it. And, and I did write a few chapters. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at my computer screen right now and they're like right in front of me. It was like chapters like uh, it's I remember this is so silly. Like there was there was just stuff about the band, like fun stories, the five most electric games I'd ever you know, been to. Like my idea for the ultimate marching band show, which is like ridiculous and completely not possible to do. Then there's like there's I feel like what are probably less interesting chapters. There's a chapter where I try and cast the entire band, the entire football team, like popular University of Iowa personalities as celebrities for when they make a movie about how awesome we are. There was, there's an account of this time I played one of the University of Illinois marching band members in a, in a video game. Like no one's interested in that, <laughs> you know, there's, yeah, there's just a lot of stuff in here. That's like kind of funny. There's a whole chapter. I'm suggesting a whole chapter on how to impersonate Kirk Ferentz. So there's, yeah. There's stuff in here that, that the world never needed. So what's some of the stuff you're working on now? I'm glad you asked. And I'm not comfortable moving forward until I do a costume change, actually. I came prepared, <laughs> I came prepared with multiple <laughs> costumes because, fellas, I'm about production and, and, and production value. So I went into my closet again and then pulled out another old classic that won't be a, um, won't be a surprise to anybody, but it's pretty comfortable. Yeah. 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 I don't, I don't even know if these have changed through the years. I haven't been to an Iowa basketball game in 20 years. Anyway. Oh, man. Glad to know it's still big on me. All right. <laughs> I feel comfortable enough to move on now. What, what was the question? Again? <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have you talk a little about what some of your latest projects, latest work. Thanks for asking. Yeah. 
so the latest book I released is called Kevin on Earth. And it is the story of 2020 told day by day, like in the style of letters home. So each day, each page is dated a new day. And it's letters home from an alien who's come to earth on his study abroad program. And he, uh, can't, he chose earth because it's a party planet. You know, he just thought he could like procrastinate and kick back on the beaches uh, for a whole year. The only problem is that year is 2020. So it's a day by day account of what really did happen in 2020, but through the eyes of an alien. Um, so I came out with that on Black Friday last year and pretty proud of that. Uh, and then I have uh, two books that um, were released within the last five years. One is called Pigeon and one is called Bender at the Bon Parisian. And those are my two mystery or my two like humor mystery novels where I just kind of sat down and I said, like, what kind of book do I really like to read? Because I love to read. And that's and that's kind of how I spend most of my time, I feel like. And and I just thought I'm just going to read. I'm just going to write exactly what I would want to read. So so I, I did those and I've kind of got a thing for the city of Paris. So both of those were set there. And originally the idea was originally the idea was, you know, I just want a reason to, to write about Paris and like enjoy some escapism. And I would say for anyone who enjoys mysteries and and especially lighthearted ones, like they're they're pretty lighthearted uh, reading material. And I, I would obviously recommend them. And gosh, if we're friends, which we all are in the Hawkeye Marching Band, I, I, I mean, just email me and I will send you a PDF. I am not like discerning about like, I don't force my friends into buying books. But, but if you are interested in buying the books, they are all available on Amazon, easily found. They sure are. They sure are. <laughs> they're in print. They're, they're, uh, they're available via Kindle as well. So yeah, they're out. Well, you know what? We ought to talk a little bit about some of your favorite HMB memories. Because uh, just because we were prepping for this episode, you mentioned some that in particular, that meant a lot to you, particular games, yeah. road, maybe road trips, bowl trips. Look, I'm not comfortable like moving that. on until we do a costume I knew change. a costume change was coming. Yeah, yeah. Can make a note know. that when we do the video tease, we might have to do this in three segments or more, depending on the costume Slick. changes. You know, it's got to okay. happen. <laughs> I mean, so far, I felt like what was in my closet is probably just like in everybody's closet. But I think I think this one is is unique. I think this one is truly vintage. This is an old jersey. Remember when they had the like the bumblebee bumblebee things? This is a, a gift from my old sousaphone friend Darren Wilson. Okay, we can move on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, gosh, everybody has got like you know kind of the fun stories. I feel like the the big ones. I, I think back to those those standout games. I mean, and and these are some I know people have talked about in previous episodes. Laura Siebert probably mentioned these. The Eddie Robinson kickoff classic when it was like a million degrees. Uh, that one was crazy because uh, Chad Smith, the drum major before me, told me the drum major never, ever takes off his coat. It does not matter how hot it is. Like everybody else can remove their coats. The drum major cannot. And so I froze four full liter bottles of water the night before. And uh, I, I had them in a blank, uh, in a backpack under the stands. And I took them out each quarter, one each quarter. And it melted as at the rate I could about drink it in a quarter. And um, 
and I'd been basically pounding water all night. So by the end of that game, I felt fine. I mean, I was hot, but I never once got, you know, felt dehydrated or anything, but my entire uniform, I mean, was completely soaked all the way through. Like you could touch it and like water would come out of the the fabric, uh, which is insanely gross because of how thick they are. You know, I mean, it's insanely gross no matter what, but there was that game. I mean, the, the MSU game in 2000, where we snapped a 13 game losing streak was crazy. Uh, the, I mean, I just didn't, part of me just didn't believe we would ever win a game. Like it just wasn't in the culture back then. The, and I think that's part of what made the, the run of football that I witnessed special because my, my freshman year, we went three and nine. That was my last, that was the last year with Hayden. Then I became the drum major the first year. Kirk became the coach and we went one in 10. And at the time, I don't know what's happened since, but at the time it was the record for a four year stretch of football. No class had ever gone from freshman to senior and witnessed a team go from one in 10 to the, from like, from like a one loss team to a one, or I'm sorry, a one win team to a one loss team. We went one in 10 final year 11 and two until we went to the orange bowl or 11 and two because of the orange bowl. Um, and, uh, so when we won that Michigan state game in 2000, it was my second year as a drum major. And like we, it was, we'd lost 13 games in a row and it didn't even occur to me to play the victory song. I mean, I would sort of forgotten how I remember someone was like, get up there, get up the ladder. And I was like, why? we're partying. And it, like, it didn't even occur to me. It wasn't part of the lexicon. No, we we're going to win anything. So that was really special. Um, the uh, Alamo bowl was uh, my last game with Julie Canterbury, who was uh, the golden girl for three of my four years. And it was uh, my friend Darren's birthday on that trip. So we had a really fun time. Uh, the big 10 clincher in Minnesota was crazy. I cried in the fourth quarter because I realized you know, we were, we were up that whole game, but it wasn't until the fourth quarter that I realized, wow, we really have a shot at a Rose bowl. We were like at least co big 10 champs. It was, that was an emotional moment where it's like, I can't believe that like I get to witness <laughs> this happening after all those years of losing. One thing about actually the Iowa um, like audition process and you only get some things you only get once in your life. Like, and I felt that about being the drum major. Cause I was like, man, well, I remember my aunt called me on the phone and she was like, she's like, you know, after you graduated from Iowa, she was like, I thought the best thing, the greatest thing you were ever going to do in life was be the drum major of the Iowa marching band. And part of me was like, Oh, awesome. Then I was like, wait, what? You thought I peaked at 22, you know, I was like, I was like, I really appreciate the sentiment, but like, ouch, like, but then I thought to myself, when would I ever get a chance to step in front of, you know, 78,000 people every Saturday, you know, when would I ever get a chance to, to run out of the end zone behind the golden girl, you know, when would I ever do something that was, that had that amount of visibility, that amount of audience and, and mm -hmm. that amount of tradition and everything. You go, wow, that Iowa stuff was really special in a way that I don't think I could realize at age 21. You know, mm -hmm. I just, I, I'm not saying I got complacent. I'm not saying I took it for granted because I definitely enjoyed every minute. And there was many times when I stopped myself to smell the roses, but it's like, man, I don't think I ever realized how lucky I was to do it. And then of course the Orange Bowl was, was a tough 
game to watch and actually a tough trip to go on logistically. It was short. Uh, the hotel was not like really walkable to anything. And the, the band, like we weren't, we weren't given like a really comfortable rehearsal if I remember. And we were in the stadium hours before it started, the game started. Um, and then it was of course a hard game to watch in 2003, but you know, that was my last game and, and special for a few things. But I, uh, aside from that commentary, uh, there are a few other things that I feel like are more useful to share. Cause we all, I, I heard your guys bowl game list and it's crazy. Like you've been to four bowls each or something. I mean, like I could, I never even dreamed of that. It just wasn't even like in my imagination. Like when we went to the Alamo bowl, I was like, we've made it like, this is the top of the mountain, you know, but no, I think the thing that I'm really, really proud of is that I tried very hard and, and Julie and Diana, who was the, the golden girl after her and the band managers when I was there, um, Brent Payne, Andy Owen, Matt Hectone and Ben Weiss, like our, our team, like our little kind of group of folks, like we tried really hard to try and find some special things to do and things that, that would really not necessarily make our mark on our generation, but would, would honor what would make us feel like we belonged with all the with all the previous generations that did really fun, special, cool stuff, like making buttons that says it wasn't me or something, you know, like, like those, 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 those earlier transition traditions. So uh, I I think one of the craziest things that that we decided to do, and I don't even remember the thought process behind it was we did those slideshows. I think that, do they still do a slideshow at Band Banquet? When I started out, it was actual slides, you know, and and it was that way for many years. Yeah, an actual slide projector. I was there during the transition to video. And uh, so we just took a video camera like everywhere throughout the season. We like recorded everything. We got several warnings that we could never like share the recording with anybody because we were we were doing it on the sideline in games. You know, we were we were getting proprietary footage that people like, you know, weren't allowed to do. Like we could have it for our own stuff, but we had logos in the shots. We had players in the shots. We had all this stuff. But one thing we did was we went over to the football complex and we interviewed football players and coaches about the band. And we never really planned it. Like we, we called and usually got the okay to come and talk to a coach or two, but then we just see who else was hanging around. And so, you know, Brett Bielma, who's the uh, Illinois coach now, was our tight end coach at the time. And so he gave us like a great one. Of course, Kirk Ferentz did. Ken O'Keefe gave us a great testimonial. But there was the quarterback at the time, uh, John Butcher. I don't know, like, John, if you remember him, like Tim, I wouldn't imagine you would have ever known him. He was this Illinois football phenom from Wheaton, who was like Mr. Football Illinois and probably 99 or something or 2000. He came into Iowa and we had really good quarterbacks, but we didn't have a star quarterback. We didn't have someone who you could trust to put the game on their shoulders. Like we had competent guys. We had Kyle McCann who wound up being a very reliable quarterback. We had Scott Mullen who was pretty streaky. We had Randy Reiner at the beginning, Randy Reiner's at the beginning who was like kind of streaky, but John Butcher was supposed to come in and be the save all. And for a while he did, I think he got injured maybe in the one season the point is we went in and we, we caught him in the Iowa like football complex. And he said some really nice things about the band. We were like, you know, we said, so what's it like being in game and hearing the band and like, you know, how many games do you think we're going to win next year and all that stuff. And he was nice enough, but he was still young, maybe a sophomore and like kind of stiff. And we clearly had caught him off guard, but he was nice. 
Then the next year, he had a flare up in the offseason with his roommate who was an O-lineman. There was a falling out with the coaches and he bolted and went to Illinois. You're nodding, John, because you remember, right? So he goes to Illinois and somewhere along the line, we get the idea to dress all in Illinois super fan gear, go to Champaign and interview him for the slideshow for the next year, like the exact same slideshow. Like, I don't know where we got the guts to do that, but like, it seemed like a good idea at the time. So uh, one of the Susies named Jeff Buchanan, who's like a wonderful guy. And, and we had so much fun back then. He and I get in my little pickup truck and go to Champagne with our Illini t-shirts on. And I remember I, I got a, like, I got like a bright orange, ugly visor and that said, you know, University of Illinois on it. I don't remember how we got his address, but it, I mean, I think we just got a copy of the directory, just like every student, you know, is in the directory. And uh, we couldn't find his street. He was in an apartment and we couldn't find his street. So we went to a pizza, a pizza place. And we asked them, if you had to deliver to this address, where would you go? And they, and they were like, oh, yep, that's a hard one. That's in this apartment complex. It's a private road, so it's not on like a map. That's why you couldn't find it, whatever. So they directed us there, which is like probably totally illegal <laughs> like of them, you know, to share someone's like private information. But I was like, cool. We went and we waited in the parking lot. I don't remember waiting for like more than an hour, hour and a half. Maybe it was not long. And sure enough, a car pulls up and John Butcher gets out. And we like leapt out of the car with our video camera and we're like, hey, John, you know, uh, you know, we're we're doing a documentary about Illinois football. Like, do you, do you have a second? And he was like, of course, bro. Of course, of course. <laughs> you know, and, and we and we asked him the exact same questions, pretty much like, so are we going to be any good next year? Like, what's it like playing on the field with the band out there? And I didn't do anything other than my wardrobe to like alter my appearance. It was the exact same guy giving the exact same interview to him the next year. And then we had a football and he agreed to play catch with us. So we had all this footage of us playing catch. And I remember we left going, we left, you know, on our way back to Iowa city, just like we were big fans of him at Iowa, obviously we were super annoyed that he left, but I remember on the way back, we were completely starstruck. We were like, did that just happen? Like, I think I'm a major John Butcher fan. Like now again, Cause he was so nice to us and he, he was not stiff. He was not anything like he was the first time he was clearly in a better place. But now I think back and I'm like, man, where did we have the guts? Did the Hawkeye marching band really just troll the starting quarterback of the fighting Illini? Like, yeah, we did. And like, did we just become fans of the starting quarterback for the fighting Illini? Like, don't tell anybody, but I think we just did. That guy was awesome. You know? So I look back on that. And I'm like, I, I can't believe that happened. I would not do that now. That is amazing. <laughs> wholesome, but still tongue-in-cheek, trolly, clever band shenanigans. I can't believe that happened, yeah. We're going to be watching the 2022 uh, slideshow to see if anybody in the current HMB picks up on this. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. Let's go. Well, I remember after we did that, we were like, how on earth are we going to do a better slideshow than this? Because we had some other stuff in there. We made a party poster, a house party advertisement for Kevin's house, Kevin Kasten's house. We hung it up all over town and we, we filmed it hanging like all over town. 
And then uh, I remember we even got some of our athletic friends, like Robert Gallery was an O-lineman and he was seeing Becca McCann, who was, I want to say she was like a guard on the women's team, on the women's basketball team. And so we got them, we filmed them passing it out to people. And that was in our slideshow one year. And that was like so much fun. And, and Kevin himself was such a, he was so good natured about those slideshows. Like he once uh, Matt Hectone and I, who was a band ma manager my third year as drum major, he and I shot this little skit where we were standing outside Voxman and we're talking just like casually and Kevin's car pulls up and like, and he's like rocking out to something. And we're like, oh, wow, he's having a good time. So we knock on the window and he rolls down the window and it turns out he's rocking out just to the doctor beat. It's like, tico, tico, tico. and he's in there like jamming out to the teacup sound. <laughs> so yeah, those slideshows were pretty good. And, and I'm proud of those. And I, they do exist somewhere on VHSs, I guess in boxes in my basement. I don't have a VCR. And I guess I'm a little less worried about sharing them now if I ever had the chance, just because I'm less afraid of, of uh, legal recourse. But those VHSs, do those sound like uh, perhaps valuable contributions to the history project, Mr. Brown? I think that's possible. If I have them, uh, I, I can find a way to get them to you for sure. Sounds I assume cool. they're down there. I have like a thousand VHSs. <laughs> Yeah. But, yeah, they've got a history project mm -hmm. going with the School of Music right now where they're like oh, cool. putting together old archives and digitizing stuff. Uh, oh, man, I've got some stuff. I've got, you know what I have, and I don't even know how I have it. I've got that letter from the Stanford band. Do you know what I'm talking about, John? You wouldn't know, Tim, because if I have it, it means you never saw it. No, I don't know what you're talking about. Does Stanford do something to Iowa? No, it's rough. Somewhere, I want to say in the mid-90s or so, I don't know, there was a band manager named Brad Williamson, I think. What I have is a series, and again, I don't know how I have this. Like, I don't, <laughs> yeah, I don't know how I, how, like, I got this in a box. But um, it's three documents. First, it's a letter on the old computer paper from when I, when I was a freshman. Our, we had electric, we had email. I was, I think, the first class to maybe have email or something. I don't remember, but it was a blue screen dot matrix, like not web-based. It was like server-based email. So we had the first document in this collection is an email printed out from Brad Williamson to the Stanford band, like just info at standard band. And it's one paragraph where he goes off about they, how they are a disgrace to marching and about how they don't like their traditions are disrespectful and how like great schools like Iowa, Michigan, Ohio State, like really are the, the gold standard for marching. And there they are out there with their skateboards and their kazoos or whatever. And it's got a bunch of bad words in it. The second document after that is a very comprehensive letter from the PR department in the Stanford band that is absolutely hilarious and absolutely like top-notch trolling about how like it refutes every claim that he gives in his. So at one point he calls them bastards and they're like, they're like point number four, you called us bastards. It is a like stated fact that 60% of the band absolutely knows who their fathers are. And, you know, like, like that kind of stuff, like real sarcastic stuff, you know, and, uh, and it's, it's absolute gold. And the very bottom says like, uh, 
but Brad, we don't fault you for any of this because clearly I forget what the line is, but it's such a great line. It's something like clearly the good, like good hearted, full of goodwill, Brad Williamson, who's the band manager at the, of the university of Iowa hockey marching band would never write a letter like this to Stanford. So we're assuming that the evil probably goateed Brad Williamson, evil twin, who sent us this letter is not the band manager, but just to be safe, we've sent a copy to doc, of this letter to Dr. Morgan Jones, Dr. Myron Welch, and the dean of the school, like so-and-so, whatever. So obviously Brad Williamson, poor Brad Williamson, who's like a really like nice guy from what I understand, gets like pulled in and he actually didn't write it like he was beyond flabbergasted about like what had happened and super embarrassed but it just it truly one of those guys who it was not in his character but back then the dot matrix blue screen email was the kind of thing where if you log out but someone else could come to the computer and just like scroll up and get to your home screen you know and like send an email and so a band member wound up fessing up and was like yeah like Brad logged out and I was right there in the, in the band office. So I just scooted right over and, and I forget who that person was, but the third document in this like set stack of letters I have is the apology from that band member saying like, Hey, I shouldn't have acted this way. It was me, whatever. And that guy got kicked out of band. I heard, I feel like I heard he got kicked out for like a year. He got suspended for a year for that, but I, I have the paper trail in a box at my parents' house. I should, I should turn that in. Oh my. Yeah. 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 Wow. So tell us a little bit about what your game day routine was, particularly when you were drum major. Yeah. I'm not comfortable moving forward until I get a costume change. (laughs) Because I'm the kind of guy who likes to look good all the time. You know, not just a little of the time. When I feel like this look is played out. I think the Hawkeyes thought this look was played out in 1991 or something. So let's get, let's see what, let's see if we can do any better here. All right. I'm comfortable now. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Let the record show that was just a hat. We can do better than that. We can do better than that. Uh, my game day routine. You know, I, I've actually heard that the current work crew and the, the current drum major and golden girls sort of do it differently. But back then, uh, we all got up together and went to breakfast together. So, you know, we did that every single um, game day. We went to the Perkins in Coralville at like 4.30 in the morning. And that was the entire work crew, the drum major and the golden girl and, and both librarians. And uh, honestly, that was probably my favorite part, like my favorite sort of tradition uh, through those years. And I was there long enough to get like multiple like the, the work crew turned over a lot. The librarians, I feel like they were a little bit more consistent. Like Amanda Lumberg uh, was a librarian with me for several years, uh, Megan Fulton. But the work crew, yeah, turned over a little bit. After that, we went to the field and, and obviously kind of did our early morning rehearsal. I think everything is, has been about the same since, but I, I always exhausted myself during games. I think it's, it's official to say, I mean, back then, I mean, if it was an 11 o'clock kickoff, I remember there were times when we'd still be in the first quarter and I'd just say like, man, this is fun. I love being here. Like I love those game day, those fall, those fall sunshine rays where it's not too hot, not too cold. 
the smell back then of the natural grass. Like I wasn't there at any point when it was turf, it was all natural grass. And like, there was a certain smell, probably the gross smell of the uniform also, but there was really just something charming about the whole experience. But there were times in the first quarter where I remember being like, boy, count down four hours and then I can take a nap, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, there was, cause there was also nothing better, especially in those later years when you won the game, there was nothing better than going back to your apartment and just being able to crash for a few hours and, and kind of, uh, unwind. But yeah, I don't know that my game day routine would have been any different, but I sure, yeah, had a lot of fun back then. And I don't think about it very often. I don't make it to Iowa city very often. There was, there was one time when I lived in LA that I was in a band that, that came through on tour. And that was wild because to, to come back to Iowa city kind of for quote unquote work and play at what was then the Picador which was originally Gabe's Oasis. And I think it went back to being Gabe's or Gabe's Oasis now, uh, which we'd played a bunch of times in college, which was really fun. But just, just getting to walk around the town. In fact, I probably come back once every five years, maybe. But I, I was there in March. So uh, right before the lockdown last year and just walking around a little bit and like diving in some of the old bars and sitting there kind of midday for a beer, like, the airliner where a band played like a bunch of times back when I think they allowed bands in there. Deadwood, Dublin Underground. I, I clearly had a very classy <laughs> set of places to go, but it was it was really fun to kind of walk around town and and a lot has changed, but a remarkable amount ha- hasn't changed, and that's nice. The post game naps are clutch for sure. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> couldn't live without them. <laughs> persisted for a while i remember i know uh drum majors talked about that while i was there too the perkins in the morning oh yeah i've heard that they only do that like maybe once or twice a season this year or the, these days on kind of special occasions we did it every saturday because it was a guardrail against accidentally sleeping in like if you crashed at 1 a.m and you had to be up at like four um you know even if you slept through your alarm it meant that a member of the work crew or a golden girl was like knocking on your door at 4 15 because your ride was there to be like hey like we're going to perkins and i it didn't happen often but i mean if you do anything for four years at 4 30 every morning every time you do it like you're gonna miss one or two and i remember one or two where like i ran out of ran out of the apartment like wearing mesh shorts no shirt uh shoes and like with my hanging bag over the shoulder and like just like my undershirt, like kind of waving in the wind because I was late. Um, but uh, yeah, there was some real charm about those morning breakfasts. Can we bring it back to writing a little bit? Um, yeah. Or hmm, actually uh, advice, perhaps? Actually, right, well, before you do that, hang on again, guys. I'm inspired by what he's been doing. Yes. I, I don't I don't know if I can do this without a costume change. I'll be right back. <laughs> I I'm going to do another one too. Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, had, dude. Looking good. I bought, I bought, oh, and you got a uniform. Are you serious right now? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's the surplus store when they switched over. Wow. I have both uniforms I wore, not here at my parents' house, but I, my dad wants nothing more than to get them out of the house and give them to me. And I'll take them. I will take them. But I really enjoy shoveling snow in them and everything once in a while, just for effect. Dude, John, that's a killer hat, man. Yeah. Um, I had something else on. I, I have a 1977-78 Iowa football helmet. Yeah. It's just tight enough, though. If I had it on long enough, my wife would probably be taking me to the ER to get it extra kid. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's like, no, wanna, we're not taking a risk. <laughs> you know what? 
guys, when I first signed on this call, or actually before I signed on this call, I was just like, since St. Patrick's Day is coming up, I'm going green. When I first like dialed into this, right before I turned on my microphone, I said to myself, I said, press, this will go well if no one goes to the ER. That's my only wish. And so I'm glad we're on the same page. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Actually, you know what I want to, you know what I kind of want to touch on and I'd love your guys take on, I I think, especially your guys take, because obviously, Tim, you only know a marching band under Kevin Castens and John, you only know a marching band under Morgan Jones. And I, I I only know Kevin Castens also, but my first year in band was Kevin's first year. And the transition between Kevin and Dr. Jones, putting it, you know, sort of, frankly, I, I'm not positive was graceful. Like they're two very different guys. And I've heard that the transition time was actually kind of an interesting time in history because I, I didn't know Dr. Jones. I, he actually contacted the band office one year because he had like yard work to do during the summer. So Matt Hectone, one of the band managers when I was there, he and I worked for Dr. Jones for, I, I think I did it for two summers. And like, it was small stuff, like drive Dr. Jones to the, to the lumber yard and like load up some stuff, come back and help. Like, I forget. It was like, help build a shed. I one one summer I mowed one summer. I did like mulch. I chopped a bunch of firewood one year, but I, I knew enough about Dr. Jones to know that this guy was an expert people motivator and sort of a, one of those people that, that students probably loved to march for. And I loved marching for Kevin Castens also, but Kevin had a completely different set of skills from what I could observe. Like Kevin was an absolute administrator. I mean, he absolutely like managed the relationship between the athletic department, the game management team, plus the, the music department and students like really deftly. I mean, like he, he had all his ducks in a row. He was a great uh, drill designer, the kind of guy whose name I think was on like the prototype drill software as a, you know, a, an advisor to develop this stuff. I had known him from Smith Walbridge clinics when I was in high school. We didn't know each other personally, but I'd seen him there. And I think that's one of the reasons why when I auditioned to be the drum major freshman year, he liked me was that he saw on the resume that we had similar experience. We'd both been through this, this drum major camp. We both knew, both knew that same system. And he told me even before I became drum major, after he saw my application, he kind of, he was like, it's so good to see somebody else who like has seen, you know, the, the system that, that I've been working under and, and understands that. And we have similar stuff. We have similar mindsets. And so I think that helped me a little bit in the, in the audition process. But I don't know. I, I remember when, when I was the drum major, my first year was my sophomore year. I mean, I won the job when I was a freshman and there was some sentiment from a very small but loud faction of the band about how like they really missed the Morgan Jones days. And uh, I don't know, Tim, maybe, you know, uh, Craig Arhus, who is, would have been a T.A. getting his doctorate probably somewhere maybe just before you were in band. Anyway, he was, he was getting his master's when I was there and we knew each other from Smith Walbridge also, but he came back several years later and he was like, band is a different place. He was like, the, the transition is over. He's like, people love Kevin Castens. Mm-hmm. And, and he's like their guy, kind of like uncle Kevin, <laughs> like, and I was kind of like, wow, 
I never knew that was like possible because there was like this faction of the band that, that definitely was, was struggling a little bit with the transition and our numbers were so down those days. I mean, like, I feel like there was 190 people in band or something the, the first year I was there. Don't quote me on that, but it was, it was under 200 and those are, early years. I feel like my memories of those early years are, are maybe not unfairly skewed toward, toward that kind of those memories, but uh, it certainly colored things I remember from those, from those early years and a lot of traditions that, that, that transition got affected by also kick line, the fireman song that I know you guys have talked about before uh, like little things. Um, so I feel like I was in a way lucky uh, and also there for a unique transition in the history of the band. I've heard nothing but amazing things about Dr. Jones, which is why I was kind of like, man, I'd love to hear about him. Uh, John, if, if you want to say anything about him, he was a great guy. He was, he was absolutely incredible. Um, he, he was the kind of director, at least when I was you know, during my time, you'd walk through a wall for him. I mean, you really would. Awesome. I mean, he just, yeah. he was tough. He wanted, he demanded excellence as he should, but he was fair and he cared about everybody in that band, every kid in the band as if we were his own kids. And there were days that you, you really saw that. I remember matter of fact, the Monday after the Columbus Hilton incident of 1985, that it was the first thing at practice was a huddle and he was rather emotional. I mean, he was, he felt that day the need to submit his resignation over because I mean it hit national news it got to be that big of a news story and um, they did not accept his resignation and we were all the happier that he stayed just that's that's what he meant to us you know there he knew how to motivate us you know there were the days where by weeks by Wednesday just for whatever reason things just weren't coming together and, and I remember one day he just said I've got a game to march Saturday I don't know if any of you are going to show up or not threw down his microphone, got in the car and drove off. And we're all just like, what just happened? That's and I'll tell you what, the next day though, everybody was just like, okay, don't screw this up. <laughs> and it was, and that was back in 89 when we were working through a pretty tough show. We opened with battle him and closed with the 1812 overture. And that was a show that it was in front of the home crowd. We were having a tough season. We finished five and six that year, national TV audience, and oh, by the way, the Marching Lion I showed up. So, I mean, you want to talk about, it was, this This has got to be about as close to perfect. If we can't be 128% perfect, we better be the absolute closest thing. Because we had made arrangements at the end of the 1812 to shoot off fireworks, which I still can't imagine what the patients at the hospital were thinking when all of these are going off at this point. You know, it was late afternoon. Um, but I mean... It, it was a case of he knew how to motivate, but he was, he, he was, he was a person who really cared about everybody in that band and cared about their welfare and, and wanted to make sure that, you know, we were the best, you know, bandsmen or, you know, bands people, and as well as the best people we could be, you know, he reminded us, we represent the band and school of music, the university and the state of Iowa and how important that was and to use discretion um, learned a ton about flexibility uh, from him. And yeah, so when, when I have situations now in the real world where I, I've really got to em employ flexibility, that's where I got it, um, yeah. was from him. So 
learned a lot of life lessons with him as the director of the Hawkeye marching band and loved every minute of playing for him. Oh, that's awesome. What a great guy. I, that came through just by chopping his firewood during the summers. Not to that extent, obviously, but you could tell that, that he was such a great guy. And it made me sort of understand why the transition between Dr. Jones and, and Mr. K were, was difficult for some students. And Mr. K, like if you're listening, man, you are one of my most influential teachers. I mean, obviously in life. I, one thing that, that really touched me with, with Kevin, because Kevin was not the kind of person, at least for us, who stood up to give the big motivational speech. He expected you to do the work. You came up, you did the work, but he was not like the guy who, who was like, guys, we got a tough one on Saturday. Like he, that wasn't like his you know, mm-hmm. style. But uh, my one kind of anecdote about, about Kevin, where it, it really kind of hit me right was it was many years later, I was in my thirties and I just kind of decided it's probably too old. I'm married now. I'm probably too old to be a camp counselor at drum major camps anymore. So I did my last one. And uh, the students like started calling me Mr. Maxson. And that was really the, the straw that broke the camel's back. Cause I, I thought, I thought I'm no longer relating to students in a fun camp counselor drum major way. I, they think I'm like a teacher. Wait so, till they call you, sir. Uh, well, <laughs> I've been demanding that for over a decade already. So that was, <laughs> no, but, uh, but I turned in like that the next summer when we were all getting the staff together, I, I was talking to Barry Hauser on the phone. Barry is the current University of Illinois director uh, and one of my close family friends. And, and he was the, I think he was the drum major at Florida in my first year while I was at Iowa, drum major at Iowa. And he just by total serendipity went to high school with my in-laws. So we were, we've been tight through the years and, and I called him and, I, and he owns the camp now, the drum major camp. He didn't then, but he was, he was doing a lot of administrative work. I called him. I said, it's like, Barry, I'm out. I'm old. And he, and he's kind of said, no, that's a shame. But he's like, I get it. No problem. And I want to say Kevin hung around one more year at that camp. Kevin outlasted me by a year at the camp. And Barry called me later and said, hey, Kevin just called and said he wasn't going to go next summer. And I, he said, I protested. And I said, oh, but Kevin, you're not retired quite yet. And, and, and he said, no, it's just time to move on. And he said, go ahead and, and hang up my metaphoric jersey in the metaphoric rafters right next to Press Maxon's. And I was just like... Kevin Castens. All right. I was like, retired, retired together. <laughs> so, you know what though? I'll throw, I'll throw Barry Hauser's story your way. I don't know yeah. him personally. Just, I happened to this summer be attend a webinar where it was obvious Barry and the, the marching lion. I have kind of been at the forefront of the COVID pandemic. They have. Um, and he was talking about literally the physics of, you know, when you play your horn, what effect that has of, potentially projecting out the virus through through the horn and the need for bell covers the need for the for the face masks with the the slit for the mouthpieces which is something that the hawkeye marching band then also adopted but uh it was it seemed like he was kind of early in that process of starting to see where things like that were going to go with regard to the pandemic yeah barry hauser is a genius i mean he really is like he's always I mean, he's just one of the best people motivators and musicians that I know, but he's always thinking about the next step ahead. I think they were the first band in the nation to go to all cell phone music, you know, all electronic music. 
they, I mean, he's just always thinking about the next thing. And, and I think that's one thing that the Illinois band has always prided themselves on. They claim to be the first to do a, to do everything. I feel mm-hmm. like, and Barry has really like taken it upon himself to not let that tradition die. He's like, what's the next thing? What do I do? You know? Mm-hmm. And um, so, uh, I mean, I'm proud to know that guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We've known each other a long time mm-hmm. and my wife's family has known his family a long time. So, so I got nothing but good things to say about Barry much mm-hmm. love to him. And the only time I've ever wanted to see anything Illinois related succeed is under, is under Barry. Understood. Yeah. <laughs> and John Butcher, apparently. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, supposedly back then the future was with Butcher. I know that was, that was the slogan. <laughs> hey, speaking of Smith Walbridge alums, what about David Woodley? I got a lot of love for Dave Woodley. Dave Woodley also did uh, a lot of time at Smith Walbridge clinics. He and I overlapped. I was a student, so we didn't know each other well. Um, but I did a college visit before I committed, not committed to Iowa, before I decided to go to Iowa. Um, I did a college visit at, um, at uh, Indiana and I walked into Dave Woodley's office and I said, Hey, I, I gone to Smith Walbridge clinics. I remember you. And he was like, Oh, great to see a Smith Walbridge person here. And I said, I said straight up, I said, Hey, this, I don't, again, I don't know where I got the guts to do this, but I just said, Hey, I, um, I want to be a theater major. Cause I did at the time. I was like, I want to be a theater major, but I also want to be the drum major of the marching hundred. Is that possible? And like, and I said, like, I don't like, where do you get the guts to say something like that? And I went into his office and I said that and, and, and Dave Woodley was just like, yeah, man. He was like, well, our current drum majors, neither one of them are music majors. He's like, so he's like, welcome aboard if you want to come, you know? And so that made me feel pretty good. Um, And I did wind up getting into Indiana, but I chose Iowa because uh, my aunt and uncle went there and it just kind of felt good. It felt right. Um, and I was out of state, so there wasn't a huge cost difference. And I, I wanted somewhere with big football for some reason. Iowa felt good, and it was just my luck that Chad was going to be in his last year of being a drum major. But, I mean, my plan from day one of band camp, my first year, was like, I'm going to – like, what do I have to do to audition for a drum major in the spring? You know, like, that mm-hmm. was my really my only goal. <laughs> and lucky for me, it worked out. I did, I did run into Woodley at a game like a few years later and I went up to him and I did, I knew he didn't remember me from the college visit, but I walked up to him and I was like, Hey Dave, I'm the drum major here at Iowa. I was like, but I'm uh, you know, an instructor at Smith Walbridge. And he was like, and, and before I even said my name, he said, press Maxson said, your name is all over Smith Walbridge. And I was just kind of <laughs> like, yeah, man. <laughs> like, so I yeah. see Dave was assistant director of HMB my freshman year in 85. Right. I remember hearing mm-hmm. that because he was a drum major also. Yep. Uh, he was drum major. Before, uh, I can't remember if it was right before Johnny or if there was somebody in between them. Somewhere in there. But he also mm-hmm. was the band manager also, I think, mm-hmm. a twofer. Um, and uh, yeah, what I didn't tell him was like, hey, remember that time on that student audition i said i wanted to be the the drum major of the marching hundred but i've just spent the last like five summers training the drum majors of the marching 500 marching hundred <laughs> never went that route <laughs> anyway fellas i'm not comfortable signing off until we do one more costume change oh boy 
<laughs> can you hack it? I, I, I'm already trying to figure out. I think I know where I can find something. Let's see here. This was my old pullover that I wore in most like cold rehearsals. Let's see if this will fit. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Now we're talking. What's the patch on it? The Sun Bowl. 1995 Sun Bowl. Hell yeah. <laughs> oh, and the jacket. Okay, well, hang on. <laughs> Ooh, drum major. Ow. Okay, well, now I feel really good, guys. Okay. I feel completely comfortable to sign this thing off. <laughs> well, Prez, thank you so much for being on. We so appreciate your time sharing the stories. We loved it. Uh, thank you so much for being on, and uh, we look forward to hearing from you and reading things in the future. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, I, I don't very often sort of get time to reminisce about uh, Iowa City in the old days in the band. And, um, uh, you know, I, I love listening to the other guests on your podcast, tell their stories and stuff. So uh, not only am I super pumped to have gotten to be on this show, but uh, you can count me as a loyal listener um, as well. Thank you so much, sir. Appreciate it. And that was Press Maxson, and we'll be right back with the Down and Off podcast. And thank you once again to Press Maxson for sharing his time and stories with us. Uh, a reminder and a plug that you can find all of Press's books on Amazon. Just search Press Maxson. That's Maxson, M-A-X-S-O-N, Maxson with an S. Uh, what a wonderful interview. So many fun stories from Press's time and the band. I loved it. So, John, now that we've run to our closets for another costume change, what'd you learn today? The biggest thing I learned is, one, Press Maxson likes costume changes. And two, that may have to start becoming a habit on our show. I would be so okay with that. <laughs> so Tim, what did you learn? Uh, what did I learn? Um, I, I just really loved his stories about wholesome band shenanigans, like interviewing uh, John Butcher uh, and then going to Illinois, the commitment to go to Illinois, dress up in Il Illinois gear, find him, interview him again, get him to play catch and record that for the slideshow, like, that's And that's he was none the wiser. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> and the press drives away from that going, did we just become uh, fans of the Illinois quarterback? I think we did. <laughs> By the way, uh, here's a little Easter egg for you. If you want to go back and listen to this again, go back to the song that we played after our intro, right before the interview begins. It's the Austin Powers theme song from, uh, I believe it's the Roll Along Iowa album. Uh, you can hear press shout, yeah, baby, yeah, right before it feeds into the interview. So go back and give that a listen if you want. Well, folks, thank you for listening today. We'd love to hear from you, wouldn't we, John? Absolutely. We welcome any feedback and ideas for future podcasts. Some of you have sent us some ideas. We greatly appreciate that. Some through our email, some through the HMB alumni group or the Down and Off podcast Facebook page. Um, so be watching for some of those in future episodes here in the coming months. As always, 
If you have a story you'd like to share or a person you think would be great for the podcast, again, let us know. That is the email address, iowaalumniband at gmail.com. And again, you can also use the two Facebook pages down and off as well as HMB alums. And you can find the Down and Off podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever fine purveyor of podcasts you choose. In addition to the email and the Facebook page, you can follow us on Twitter at Down and Off Pod. And, you know, I'll offer that constant reminder. If you cannot find Down and Off on your favorite purveyor of podcasts, then ask yourself, why are they your favorite purveyor of podcasts? And on the Down Off Facebook page, you will find us where we will keep a running catalog of our episodes, video teases, other shenanigans that we'll come up with, requests for the alumni band to play at wedding receptions, you name it, you'll see it. He is John Brown. I am Tim Clay. Thank you all once again for listening on Iowa. Go Hawks!